A good Tuesday morning to you on this October 26th. Welcome to Real Talk. Jesperson here with you. Hoyles and Brooks as well. A great show in store. The show, this episode, every episode in our history has been presented by the team at Bitcoin Well, our presenting sponsor. They've been with us through the beginning. And of course, what we keep telling you, every morning I come to you and I say, hey, listen, I'm not going to be telling you to buy Bitcoin. But what I am going to suggest to you is that if you're considering buying Bitcoin, what you're going to want to do is check out our sponsors tab. I'm going to show you right now at ryanjesperson.com. Here's our website. Look at how good that website looks. You can click on the sponsors link and that's going to take you right to all of our builders right at the top there, the team at Bitcoin Well. If you have questions about Bitcoin, Ethereum, crypto, Bitcoin wallets, the blockchain, the team at Bitcoin Well, I recommend yes for Benny. They're ready to help you out. Again, our website, ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. We're going to be taking on uh, many of the stories making news today, uh, right now, uh, as we speak. Uh, you know, high-profile federal politicians uh, are convening in Ottawa as the Prime Minister will introduce his new, <clears throat> and, and people are suggesting, Canadians, uh, you know, armchair pundits and, and professional pundits alike, suggesting this could be a pretty significant, will be a pretty significant cabinet shuffle uh, this morning as these uh, members of Parliament, parliament uh, members of uh, Justin Trudeau's caucus, and many of them former members of the previous cabinet, will swear in with Governor General Mary Mae Simon, uh, could see representation from Alberta probably will uh, and 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 many of these high profile ministries will likely see uh, new faces at the top including health defense environment some of these have have been revealed already we know that that Christian Freeland will remain on as a finance minister and it's it's been widely reported that uh, longtime uh, environmentalist and liberal MP Stephen Gilbo will be serving as Canada's new minister of environment and climate change this just days ahead of that COP26 conference the United Nations climate change conference in Glasgow uh, likely see Patty Haidu shaf- shuffled out of health. Uh, Minister of Defense Harjit Sajjan, a lot of people uh, speculating that, that not only will former Minister Sajjan uh, be reassigned, uh, likely due in part to what many Canadians believe to be, I think, ineffective management of, of some sexual harassment and sexual assault allegations and testimony uh, and a real pervasive problem within the Canadian Armed Forces. Many people also suggesting that there could be uh, a woman uh, named as minister to uh, the defense portfolio. Could it be Anita Anand? We'll wait to see. That'll be an interesting one. And then, of course, Edmonton City Council, our home city, swearing in today as well. Mayor Amarjeet Sohi and a, and a new look city council. So a lot going on there. In just a few minutes, we're going to talk to uh, Dr. Khalid Madani. For, uh, he's the chair of African Studies, the African Studies program at McGill University. We're going to find out what's going on in Sudan. It's a, uh, really a remarkable scenario there, certainly a troubling one. And uh, major implications. What are the global implications and, and what do Canadians need to know about that story? We'll be going there in a few minutes. A little bit later on today, we're going to check in with uh, a firefighter by the name of Wes Bauman. Uh, this guy is one of the ice kings. This, this, this is the type of person. Wes is the type of guy. He's done it. He's held the Guinness World Record on at least two occasions. He'll remind us that they've been unofficial. 
Because here's the funny thing. I talked to Wes yesterday, just getting ready for this conversation this morning. Um, He intended to join us yesterday. Emergency struck. That's oftentimes what can happen when you're a firefighter. Emergency can strike at any given time. Uh, Wes told me, I said, so what's the deal? Your history with with the ice bath world records. And he says there's this kind of community. He's you'll see when he joins me. He's really funny. He refers to guys as like gentle. He's like, there was this Russian gentleman that set the record. And then he goes, and then I came in and broke it. And then this this gentleman from Finland came in. And I feel like he's using the word gentleman because he's kind of pissed off. They're taking their world records away, you know, within hours or days or weeks. But everybody, there's this community around the world of these ice bathers that want to hold the world record. Wes attempted it this weekend uh, in support of muscular dystrophy, a great fundraiser. Stopped a little short. If you were following the story, you already know that I don't think it's a surprise, but uh, we're going to find out what it's been like for him. There are weeks and weeks of training preparing for something. You don't just sort of jump in an ice bath and see how you do. He's telling me these ice bathers, many of them will put on, try to put on 20 pounds, put on 20 pounds intentionally to help them. Well, Uh, yeah, you you want some of that body fat to be able to insulate. Yeah, Yeah, we'll find out why that is. Apparently, it's a big calorie burner. He said it's tough to put on weight when you're training a lot. Mm. Yeah, because it's because being in super cold water is a calorie burner. I'm going to say about 10 times today on the show that that we at Real Talk and Relay Communications do not recommend that you uh, submerge yourself in ice baths without consulting with your physician first. And Wes will have some opinions on on why he does what he does and, and some really interesting insight into the mental health benefits as well. So I think it's going to be a great conversation we've been looking forward to you know if you listen to this show uh looking forward to speaking to journalist brandy morin for quite some time she's been reporting from i guess you'd call it the front line at the ferry creek blockade on vancouver island this of course where dozens of protesters have been clashing with rcmp over the past number of weeks months uh to protest logging in that old growth region we talked to former government deputy minister former treaty negotiator eric denhoff back on october 20th about this we'll get another side of the story from brandy morin uh with remarkable video as well that's coming up in about we'll call it half an hour 40 minutes from now and then what could canada's energy evolution look like and what role could geothermal energy play in that i'm really looking forward to checking in with dr jonathan banks who's a geothermal researcher Uh, that's coming up uh, i guess in about an hour from now an hour or so Before we go any further, though, uh, I've been trying to keep this off the radar of my colleagues here in studio, Sam and Sarah, because I wanted to get their first reaction, I suppose, or I I, I speculate uh, that you've probably both already seen this. But in case not, I wanted to get your your initial reactions. Have you heard about this hiker that was just rescued in Colorado? (laughs) I thought this was a joke. I thought this was from The Onion. The first 10 times I saw this headline, I, 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 I laughed. I said, that is a brilliant story. This is exactly me. And then I realized it's not satire. It is true. As reported by the New York Post, a hiker that was lost for 24 hours ignored calls from rescuers because it was an unknown number, which I think is the most amazing story of all time. <laughs> That is literally exactly what I would do. I screen calls like crazy. I've told you before. I said it just last week on the show. If they would sell a phone that wouldn't be, I guess it's called an iPad. But if there was a small tablet that could work like a phone and receive text messages, emails, I could do my social, but I could not receive calls. I would swap out my phone in a second. Aside from family and dear loved ones. 
Right. Can't stand phone calls. But I love this. Uh, the Lake County Search and Rescue Team in Mount Elbert, Colorado, are now reminding people this is amazing. This is real. Quote, if you're overdue, according to your backcountry itinerary, and you start getting repeated calls from an unknown number, please answer the phone. It may be a search and rescue team trying to confirm you're safe. <laughs> I have so much respect for this hiker. They also might be the dumbest person on the planet. Just to throw it out there. Both and. Both and. Yeah. This just goes to show, and this is not the first time we've realized that you you can you can lack uh, sort of you know do I want to say mental fortitude or this is might more qualify as street smarts trail smarts you can lack trail smarts and still become a pop culture hero and this hiker in Colorado has done just that Steli Z or maybe it's Steli Z yeah, if depending you're on where they're from, coming in from yeah. yeah why not text him. Right? Because that would have worked for me. Yeah, I'm going to block the... I'm going to screen the call. But if someone texts me, it's search and rescue being like, hey, uh, where you at? Hey, um, search and rescue here. <laughs> Not sure if you've been getting our calls, but considering you were supposed to be back a day ago and there's cougars out here, your family's wondering where you are. Could you please answer the calls? That is officially my favorite story of the day and i'm very much looking forward to 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 getting into how real talkers feel about this i suspect i don't know sam are you you too i will say that you and i have spoken on the phone very rarely like twice we do a lot of texts yeah are you a phone guy or are you a text I guy don't mind phone calls i really now i i will say i don't answer unknown numbers i don't they're usually spam or they're usually something i don't care about uh so yeah i don't answer unknown numbers i would probably find myself in that guy's shoes that being said and uh kelly my partner brought this up to me the other day when we were talking about voicemail. She said that there's one really interesting use for voicemail that What's everybody that? should take note of. Okay. If you are lost and you're losing battery power on your phone, yes. change your outgoing voicemail to tell people where you are and what you're doing. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. then if they phone you and your phone's dead, they're still going to get that message. Yes. That's, that's the one reason I can think that we should keep voicemail. If we're ever lost in the backcountry, lost on the trail, and might need somebody to be able to find us. Then remember when you change your voicemail message to stay there. <laughs> yeah. Hiking tips 101, everybody. Isn't that the whole idea? Like, you don't keep moving? Don't you, like, hunker down? So they say. And that's what you want to tell kids. Stop tell moving. kids. If you get lost, just stop. Stay there. Stay there. Wanted to get to an email real quick out of the gates, too. Yesterday, this... Um, communication strategist this media trainer by the name of grant ainsley uh put out this blog post about the story of real talk and it was very flattering uh and it was very generous and the response was amazing and i really appreciated it so i thought that i would read an email that kind of smacks me down today out of the gates to kind of balance it out because i was Hoyles, you thought I was going to read some email about how great the show is now, yeah i was yeah, like oh no, here we go no, no, no. if i've if i've learned anything you know, you talk to athletes, they say, don't read the headlines, don't read what they're writing about you, because sometimes it's going to be very flattering and sometimes it's going to it's going to be devastating. 
And so I wanted to read this from Doggo. And I told Doggo I'd read it as soon as I got the email. And I appreciated this. I really, really, really appreciate emails like this to talk at RyanJesperson.com. Doggo says a couple of weeks ago, and I'll be honest, full disclosure, I kind of remember the exchange on the air, but I don't remember what show it was. I, I, I sort of went back briefly and tried to comb through some shows. I wasn't able to track it down, but I have a vague recollection of what Doggo was writing about. Uh, says just shortly before the municipal elections, you had read a comment that I contributed on, on the chat uh, under my pseudonym, Doggo. Uh, sorry, not, not the real name, not Doggo's real name. Uh, my brief comment was in regards to equalization and my disagreement with how it's implemented. For example, Quebec getting the lion's share of the money. And Doggo says, I have been a fan of your previous show on radio, and I'm a fan of Real Talk, but I found that your demeanor when reading my comment was quite contemptuous and your disdain was evident and after you read the comment a group of regular commenters were quick to be dismissive of my concerns they were questioning my knowledge maybe even suggesting that i had a xenophobic axe to grind against quebec uh, if I were to have a real discussion regarding Quebec disproportionately benefiting from equalization, I would say that Quebec artificially stagnate, stagnates their economy by deficit spending, uh, by lavish social programs, which I personally admire and would like to see for Alberta, and by making a choice to not develop their resources. Uh, I would then say that they do this because they know they'll get equalization money in large amounts. However, the comment section doesn't always lend itself to a back and forth discussion. I felt I was being unfairly maligned. I'm not alone in my beliefs that equalization is greasy. I love that word. As Alberta did show its displeasure with the recent referendum. I want to comment on that, but I'm just going to read Doggo's email. It says I'm not writing this or I am writing this email to you because I do think, Ryan, that there's a danger of creating an echo chamber on your show that would not welcome anybody whose opinion, whose opinion deviates from the majority. And I know I'm less likely to comment again because of this interaction with both yourself, the host, and this group of commenters who listen or watch live. I'm a public servant. I've never voted conservative. I've lived in Alberta my entire life. I have no hatred toward Quebec. Uh, I'm rather impressed with how Quebec uses its position in Canada to extract the best for its people with no thought or consideration to the rest of Canada. Doggo says, I was bothered by your dismissive attitude toward my comment. I felt it was unfair. It was not worthy of real talk to take a mildly provocative comment and come back and tell me that you disagreed in the way that you did. You know, you said that you don't think the feds do call us names. I said Quebec. And then you said, well, Quebec doesn't even know we exist. And Doggo says, well, I did think that was a decent zinger with some grain of truth to it. I believe you're forgetting Denny Coderre's glee when Energy East, the pipeline was canceled. And I think it's lazy journalism to disregard other comments I made. Uh, instead, you picked a mildly salacious one. And, in, and inferred that I was an uncouth Quebec hating Albertan. I know I wouldn't have said that. He says, and then signed off for the weekend. Says, I still like real talk, but I don't know if I'm willing to engage due to what I perceive as an unwelcoming comment. Anyway, Doggo, appreciate it. I don't need to respond to everything. I wanted to read that. Let me just say very briefly, um, we welcome, we crave differing opinions on the show what kind of a show uh, would real talk be with only one opinion presented uh, i i don't think that we side with the majority in fact i think the show swims against the stream but people like you that put a lot of thought into things and that bring your opinions here and follow up with me and tell us how you truly feel you are the lifeblood of a show like this and so uh i appreciate 
you're checking out the program. I appreciate your email. Thank you for letting me know how you felt about my, uh, you felt I was dismissive towards your comment. Maybe I was. And sometimes we do a live show and, um, you know, maybe we ran out of coffee in the studio or maybe I was up late working on something truly special, leaving all these hints everywhere. But the fact of the matter is I too am human. And sometimes body language, sometimes tone of voice, sometimes facial expression can truly rub somebody else the wrong way. And for that, I apologize. I appreciate you being a part of this show and a part of this audience. You can send us emails anytime to talk at ryanjesperson.com. We're going to find out what's going on in Sudan in just a second. I wanted to remind you that the team at Eden Landscaping right now, yeah, I, they know that the weather's changing and they know that you might not be thinking about breaking ground on some sort of landscape construction project, but through the winter months, there is construction they can do. Maybe a roof over your deck to protect you while you barbecue in January. Maybe something over the hot tub or one of these three season rooms the perfect addition to what might already be your dream home were you worried about the rising cost of wood in the spring you didn't realize that the prices dropped back down by the end of summer why not start spring with one of your dreams already realized you can find eden landscaping online at landscapeedmonton.ca we also wanted to remind you that our friends at park power I've been in the business locally owned and supporting local nonprofits for coming up on 10 years now. They're your friendly local utilities provider with electricity, natural gas, and internet. You can go compare rates today on their website, parkpower.ca. And when you decide to take your business to the utilities provider that backs this show, make sure you use the promo code 2021-REALTALK. They'll give you $70 off your first bill no strings attached at parkpower.ca. We turn our attention internationally. Our lead story today, uh, the Republic of Sudan, colloquially, colloquially known as Sudan, a country, of course, in northeast Africa right now is dissolved uh, civilian rule. Uh, political leaders, including the prime minister, have been arrested. The military has declared a state of emergency. Protesters have taken to the streets of the capital, Khartoum, and there are reports of, of gunfire. Uh, now, there's a lot of background here, and we endeavor to understand this as deeply as possible. This is why we're grateful to welcome to the show the chair of the African Studies Program at McGill University in Montreal, Dr. Khalid Madani. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for making time for us, and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for taking an interest in Sudan as well. I how appreciate did, it. How, how did Sudan get to this point? Can you take us back and, and give us the relevant background? Of course, yeah. Well, after 30 years of uh, authoritarian rule, uh, something uh, very dramatic happened in Sudan that I think caught the attention of the entire world. And that was a popular uprising revolution uh, that toppled the former dictator, uh, Omar Bashir, in April of 2019. Uh, following that, um, can, a protest continued. and There was a conflict between the military that supported the former dictator and, of course, many youth and uh, the majority of Sudanese, really, who were protesting for six months. Um, and after the overthrow and after the, the ouster of uh, the former dictator, um, there was a compromise um, agreed upon in August of 2019 in which 
um, you would have um, a, a joint government between uh, military and civilian leaders. Uh, and the idea was that that transitional government made up of military leaders headed by General Burhan, who you know just um, uh, dissolved the civilian government in the cabinet, uh, as well as a prime minister, um, a man by the name of Hamdok. Uh, the idea was that the two of them were jointly going to govern the country and then oversee Sudan to democratic elections. Uh, first, it was um, slotted for um, 2022, and now it's slotted for 2023. Um, uh, you know, to uh, in terms of the background of this, this particular intervention and the military coup, which is what it is, as you know, on Monday, um, Burhan, the general, arrested the prime minister. We still don't know where he is. His wife, five other cabinet ministers as well from the civilian wing of the government, um, and uh, basically has declared a state of emergency um, and has toppled the civilian government and the transition. Um, uh, the background to, to his decision has to do with a couple of things. One of them is uh, had to do with the visit of the American Special Envoy to the Horn of Africa, who just the year, uh, day prior to this uh, military coup, had brought the military general Burhan and the civilian prime minister uh, and had them agree on a, a strict timeline to oversee elections. Uh, that, of course, um, threatened General Burhan and his allies in the military uh, because they feel, of course, uh, a free and fair elections would undermine their interest and basically uh, the Sudanese population would vote them out of office. That was one reason he intervened, which is really important. Another reason is that he is um, uh, suspected of having um, a role in the genocide in Darfur in the early 2000s that I think many of your listeners probably are familiar with. In Darfur, it was basically a massacre of upwards of 200,000 people. So he's also concerned that um, if there are if there is a transition to a, a full civilian government, that the international community would indict him for crimes against humanity um, and his deputy, um, uh, even more so, a man by the name of um, Hemeti. And so these are two reasons. One of them has to do with the timing of uh, the visit of the U.S. Special Envoy, who had insisted that there has to be a swift transition to civilian government. Another has to do, do with the threat that he feels uh, for him for his own safety, uh, uh, for being um, uh, indicted by the ICC, the International Criminal Court. And a final very important element that your listeners probably would not be aware of, um, he was motivated by um, a government committee that was established to actually uh, uncover corruption um, in the military itself, uh, specifically corruption associated with um, millions, if not billions worth of assets that the military um, has control over and monopolizes. So these are the three factors that um, made it, um, from his perspective, a matter of survival to actually um, intervene and uh, dissolve the civilian government and essentially the will of the people. Um, and at the same time, of course, declare a state of emergency with the so-called promise of, of, of overseeing elections, free and fair elections in the future, which is not going to materialize. Okay, yeah, and I wanted to ask you about that. So do you, like, with regards to the, the vibe in the street, so to speak, uh, if you were to speak to, to, to the average Sudanese citizen right now in Khartoum or, or elsewhere, uh, what do you think would be the general consensus of this very much fluid situation right now? I mean, you said the whereabouts of the prime minister right now unknown. This is very much a developing story and a very significant one. 
I'll give you an example to answer your question, which I think speaks to the heart of this question. In, in other words, you know, what is, what is the extent of the opposition in Sudanese society against this military coup? Um, a couple of weeks ago, um, Burhan did something that he thought was intelligent, and that is that he basically funded a group of small protesters to protest calling for the dissolution, dissolution of the civilian government, asking him to take over power. In response to that small protest that he funded, Hundreds of thousands last Thursday of Sudanese uh, went on the street protesting the, the possibility of a military coup and an intervention. In other words, even prior to this intervention, hundreds of thousands of Sudanese had already taken to the street in the full knowledge that there was going to be an attempted military coup. Uh, they picked upon that. And so this has been a coup six weeks at least in the making. And what we see now are protesters, not only in the central capital city of, of Khartoum, but throughout uh, the, the country. That will, of course, continue. So the popular kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, response has been to go back uh, to uh, two and a half years ago when uh, hundreds of thousands of people uh, protested the military dictatorship of Omar Bashir. And you will see that that's going, going to continue. Now, I do want to also mention that um, as opposed to the previous protest, immediately there has been international condemnation. The European Union has made a very strong statement. Secretary Blinken of the United States, the Secretary of State, has made an extremely strong statement. The United States um, has uh, revealed a promise of, uh, of aid to Sudan worth $700 million. The Canadian government immediately, um, the same day of this coup, also came up with a condemnation, all of them in tandem um, suggesting, not suggesting, but condemning this military coup uh, and um, uh, urging uh, this, um, this uh, Burhan to go back to the barracks and allow for the continued uh, peaceful uh, transition to a civilian democracy. So uh, the international condemnation actually for this military coup is unprecedented. This is not did not happen so quickly uh, with the protest of uh, 2018 and 2019. So there is a kind of international um, unanimous um, kind of condemnation of this military coup at the moment. Doctor, what sort of an impact would, you know, for example, you said the Americans pulling back on uh, 700 million dollars of, of essentially military aid. Uh, what sort of an impact does that have? Is, is it a tangible one? Is this the type of thing that could actually impact change or or I mean, it, it, it obviously it sends a message. But what sort of an impact does that have on on the situation as it develops? In, in itself, it won't have very much of an impact, of course, because it's only about 700 million. It sends an important message to the allies of the United States, which is really important. And here it's a really important question that you pose, because uh, the most influential actors uh, at the moment and have been in the past are the regional actors, not so much the United States. And by that, I mean Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates and Egypt. And Egypt. These are neighboring countries with strong financial and um, strategic ties to, 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 to the government and Burhan in particular. And so in addition to this condemnation and revoking this kind of financial aid packages, it's extremely important that the international community also uh, pressures their allies who have been supporting Burhan and his deputy um, for about since this uh, revolution occurred in 2019. And so in addition to uh, this, these condemnations, uh, I think what would really be important is A, to put pressure and persuade uh, the regional allies who are supporting Burhan to withdraw that kind of support and convince them that uh, uh, if they continue the, uh, in this path and if this military coup continues, there will be instability not only in Sudan, but in the entire region. 
And that, of course, is harmful not only to the United States' interest, but the, to the interest of uh, Egypt, to the interest of the Gulf countries. Um, I think there's a false notion on the part of these countries that somehow uh, the, these, this military junta is going to bring uh, stability and, uh, and, and, and peace, believe it or not, to Sudan and the region. And we know for a fact uh, from the past and from this particular, the actions of this particular military regime, that it's actually going to bring a great deal of instability, the possibility of the rise of Islamist extremism, which of course uh, uh, you have elements who support, who are very much supporting this kind of military coup. Uh, and we're talking about a large country that neighbors Libya, Egypt, Ethiopia, Eritrea, and of course, Chad, where there is a potential threat even of ISIS in that part of Central and uh, Central Africa. So I'm, I'm curious to know in closing, Doctor, sure appreciate your insight on this. You know, we, we hear reports of, of much of the country's Internet and phone service being uh, taken down. Obviously, that would have a huge impact on, on the average Sudanese citizen. Um, I'm, I'm curious for your insight on that and ultimately where you think this goes. Um, I think where uh, the Internet issue is extremely important. I don't have to tell you or your listeners why the Internet and the phones and WhatsApp and all that was cut off, because it's a great, uh, important key aspect of mobilizing protesters. It's just an indication of, of the strength of the, of the opposition. And this military government, of, of course, knows full well that they are in a minority. And so they're trying to um, uh, trying to stem the tide of opposition. Um, where it goes from here, there will be continued protest because these are um, social forces that encompass the entire uh, spectrum of Sudanese civil society, from rich to poor in the urban areas, in the rural areas, across ethnicity. And so what you'll see is continued mobilization. Um, and unfortunately, unless there is strong condom uh, international condemnation and action, including possibilities of sanctions or the threat of sanctions, there could be increasing loss of lives. We see that already. Upwards of at least 20 people have been killed, uh, 200 uh, injured seriously from what we know. So the protests are going to continue, but that uh, absent international support and condemnation for the for the protesters and international condemnation of a military coup will increase a state repression. I would argue in conclusion that it's very important um, for the international community to understand that uh, these are people who basically rebranded themselves from the Janjaweed, the militias that killed hundreds of thousands in Darfur, destabilized the whole country. These are the same individuals. And they have to be sanctioned not only economically, but they also have to be sanctioned in a legal sense um, under international law, including um, indictment, possible indictment by the ICC. And I think that the international community in general is unanimous in agreeing on these issues. And so that I hope will motivate them to intervene strongly, not only verbally, as you said, in terms of condemnation, but really practically in terms of threatening sanctions, implementing sanctions, and making sure that regional countries who are aiding um, Burhan at the moment are also sanctioned and warned that this would be uh, undermining their own interest in terms of regional stability. Dr. Khaled Madani, uh, an associate professor in the political science department, the Islamic Studies Institute and chair of the African Studies program at McGill University in Montreal. Our sincere thanks, doctor, for joining us. Uh, we appreciate that perspective. Serious stuff. And, uh, and, and, I, and I think it's safe to say that, I mean, these are the types of, of scenarios, not, not just in Sudan, but in that region, uh, like Dr. Madani is talking about, that have extremely serious implications uh stability in the region and globally as well and it's uh, a top priority for this show to incur you know i mean it you know we we can get into these i won't call them ruts but we we get into this 
you know, in our wheelhouse where where we've you know, we're following federal politics or we're talking about the big provincial political story or an energy story. And meantime, you know, all around us around the world, there are these major things happening. And that includes this story. And uh, we make a commitment to you, our listening audience, our viewing audience, however you join us every day, that when you tune in, you're going to be well educated and up to speed on what you need to know about what's going on around us. Um, Sam, I think we might still have some hot audio coming through here. Uh, I can hear it. Uh, I wanted to mention before we talk to Fireman Wes Bauman, which I think is who I'm hearing in my ears. Um, I wanted to remind you that the team at Friesen Brothers right now, 16 locations across the province of Alberta. You can check them out online at Friesen.com. They've got a great special leading up to Halloween. We told you yesterday, the BOGO, you know that the, this, this is the acronym everybody uses in shopping right now. Buy one, get one. BOGO. Well, it's Boo! Go. I love it. Very creative from the Friesen Brothers team. They've got all kinds of buy one, get one free Halloween specials on selected products. A great deal. There's nothing worse. Well, there are a few things worse. (laughs) Cancer, AIDS, world hunger, global warming, climate change, I think, is the preferred vernacular. Those are all worse than running out of candy on Halloween night. But just after those... Running out of ca- Halloween candy with kids showing at Hoyles, you look like you're nervous I'm going to get in hot water for this comment. Oh, of all boy. the things in life that don't really matter, <laughs> this is one of the worst. How's that? I like that. that yeah. Okay, I think you, fi- the, you got there. You of got all there. the things in life that don't really matter, running out of Halloween candy on Halloween and then having to be that house on the street that just turns off the lights and hopes that nobody knows, hopes that everybody leaves you alone. Don't wind up like that. Don't find yourself in that scenario. Check out the Boo Go specials at Friesen Brothers, Alberta Grown, and Alberta Owned. Can you, Our friends, can, uh, you, can you just like give me a little heads up before you launch into the Boo? I know that no, defeats the purpose. No, I want it defeats the purpose. You can't be like, you know, I, hey, I'm the father of a, of a six-year-old. I know how it gets. He, he lies in wait around corners for like <laughs> 20 minutes. And then a Boo jumps out and just sends me on my, yeah. So I'm learning from the best. Okay, fair enough. I'm learning Thanks, from Wyatt. Wyatt. You're welcome. Yeah, blame Wyatt. <laughs> that's, that's my hashtag. Blame Wyatt. Our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park want to remind you in two days from now, it's Miracle Treat Day. That's Thursday, October 28th. And that means that all of their blizzard sale proceeds are donated to the Stollery Children's Hospital Foundation. But these five Dairy Queens do it a little bit different. The Dairy Queens at Baseline Road, Westmount, Newcastle, Nemeo, and Palisades, they don't take the profits from the blizzards. They take the entire amount, and they donate it all to the hospital. It means that they've donated deep into the six figures in years past, and they intend on making another significant donation this year. We encourage you to show them a little bit of love, and they'll deliver them for free. If you order enough of them, you have to get in touch, contact those locations individually to find out details on that. Oh, and by the way, two double cheeseburgers for seven bucks every time you visit the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. That was just like the little tag at the end. You always want people to know seven bucks for two double cheeseburgers? Come on now. Come on now. When you were a kid, both of you, I'm going to put you on the spot here and then maybe I'll ask our next guest. I don't know if Wes wants this question. Wes Bauman coming up, fireman, in just a second. If, and Hoyles, I know, I, I, I don't think this was your style, but I didn't know you as, as a young girl. If a house had the lights turned off on Halloween, if a house was not handing out candy on Halloween, was there any risk of repercussion? This is a conversation for adults, not kids. 
Was there any risk of repercussion? That is, uh, that thought never crossed my mind. This is called real talk. So it never crossed your mind? You it, just walked past I, the house? Like, all all that, the kids just walked past the house? That was it? Just, oh, their lights are off. I guess that's it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that. now I'm kind of like, wow, that was a missed opportunity. Yeah. Sam? <laughs> Was there any risk of repercussion yeah, for houses gotta, with the lights I, like, turned off? I gotta join the good kids club. Like oh, it was, it was instilled so in me boring. very early from my parents that if the lights are off, they're not participating. You just walk on by. Yeah, all right. Uh, maybe it's because you know when you're a little kid, you you have your hand held for your first few years of trick or treating, yeah. and that just kind of ingrained it in my head. But I, I haven't. Yeah. So yeah. that begs the question. Yeah. Jespo. Yeah. No, of course. No, I just um, I would see the uh, houses with the lights on and we would all just say, oh, I guess they're not participating. And then you would pull the eggs out from your back pocket. I mean, wait a minute. They'd be crushed. I, I think it's a it's a it's a terrible thing to egg somebody's house. It's a really terrible move. <laughs> it really is. The egg shell can you can it can it harden. Like, it yeah, can take it off. It can take paint off. Yeah. It's really it's a, it's a real mess. Um, almost as much of a mess as not handing out Halloween candy on Halloween. I don't know that I'm going to. No, and then there's someone's gonna. Well, well you know, all you do is you just, you just leave your your uh, dog chained in the front yard. Yeah. Rawr, 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 rawr. No one's no one's gonna mess with your house. But it was more like you know, and 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 people are gonna say here now. People are gonna write in and say like you know, I, you know, for someone will send us a very serious email about like you know Halloween like brings the, uh, this horrible memory, and so I don't yeah. you know, and or it's like a religious thing, and how dare you? Uh, this is lighthearted. But I'm just saying that, you know, there's there's two things you could do in our neighborhood back in the day where you would run the risk of repercussion. Uh, and that would be not hand out candy at all or maybe hand out toothbrushes. Those were the two things. And uh, but kids in our neighborhood got creative. Like I remember one in particular, uh, one kid that I knew. I won't even name him now because I think he's he's now a respected executive. Um, but he brought the uh, the soup cans that you could peel off that you can open up the and just mushroom soup into the mailbox. <gasps> that was always one. It's like not totally horrible. It's just a real mess to clean up. You know, how do you get remember in the other corners? kids, other kids would take honey, liquid honey, like all over the doorknob of the house, all over the front step. Just horrible. These kids were horrible. And I would be sitting there saying, kids, think about what you're doing. This is terrible. Right. You know, right. but they wouldn't listen to me. And so you I tried. You yeah, tried so to tell them, Jespo, that, that it's I, a I bad tried. Idea. I tried to say, it's just what are you doing? This is vandalism. This is totally <laughs> unacceptable. And uh, and so I guess what this is, is a public service announcement to remind people that no matter if the lights are out or not, it's never acceptable. No, no but it kind of felt like part of Halloween. It's like these Hellraisers running around, right? That's kind of the vibe. Like That's when, the trick. Not when you're a kid. Not the treat. That's the trick. That's the trick. So that's like the age of like, I don't know what the, you know, what kind of shit disturber age is, but I think it's it's like, is it like 11 to 17? That's kind of the age of if like. If you're 17 and trick or treating, go home. Well, no, you're not. That's true. I agree. I think if you're 13 and trick or treating, go home. I don't know what the age cap is. I think once you're into, I mean, this is Alberta specific because junior high doesn't exist all across Canada or in the States. But I think once you're out of junior high, you're out of the trick or treat biz. See, I knew, I knew we would get thoughtful comments from people that would make us feel bad about joking around about this. And Jill makes a very fair point. Jill says, imagine being a single parent out trick or treating with your kids and coming back to a vandalized house. Fair point. See, see lesson see. learned. Leave the kids home to hand out the candy and go out with your friends, Jill. Right? Win win. See, more I'm- Jespo parenting tips available on my website. Oh, jeez. <laughs>
I don't see that tab on the website. Where's that tab? Yeah, it's weird. We had it up there for a bit and just just very few people clicked on it. So I, we ended up just pulling it down. I'm interested though cuz you know some folks are saying that they're not going to go trick or treating because their kids are not vaccinated and so they're going to stay home and watch movies. That's Shauna yeah. on our live t- and that's where I'm at is I don't know that I'm going to be handing out candy this year. I love Halloween. It's my favorite yeah. holiday even though it's not a holiday and it's uh, I just I don't know like I a lot of the kids the ones we were just talking about age like well, how old are you when you're trick-or-treating a lot of them are under 12 and I'm not vaccinated not vaccinated yeah. I just I I would hate to be a part of 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 yeah we're doing the uh, we're, we're putting PVC piping down the yeah. railing of our house so we can slide the candy down to the kids. Just, whatever it feels that's like a great idea but, you know um it, we've got some great comments here and uh terry says we both have the wrong take on age for trick-or-treating uh lala zess says i never turn a kid away no matter the age i love this from fatima who says i always give kids the big chocolate bars but i bought some mini ones this year for the kids that stole my election signs that's amazing at least you're not giving them like you know what's the uh, what's what's the chocolate called that make, is X lax? That's like the chocolate that at least you're not giving the kids X lax. I thought you were gonna say at least you're not giving them Tootsie Rolls. Yeah, Tootsie Roll. Now you're trying to start a fight with Sam Brooks. I'm trolling. Brooks we better right move now. on. Yeah, you really are. Before Tootsie there's a full blown fight in this, uh, although there is room, and as we get closer to the 31st, which is coming up quick, by the way, five days from now, uh, perhaps we'll leave room for debate on the best Halloween candy and put it out to the real talkers. Our next guest uh, has been training. Uh, to break the Guinness World Record uh, for surviving in an ice bath. He's held that record unofficially, he'll tell us, twice already. Um, He's doing it in support of uh, the Firefighters Muscular Dystrophy Children's Fundraiser. He was in action, in ice, this past weekend at the Edmonton Craft Beer Festival. Wes Bauman making his Real Talk debut. My man, it is great to see your face. How are you feeling? You as well, my friend. Big fan of you and the show. So thanks for having me. Well, Wes, it's so good to see you. Over the weekend, you were you were looking for uh, a three-hour Guinness World Record in an ice bath. That, that would be absolutely impossible for the average person to process what that's like to sit in an ice bath for three hours. This is a way of life for you. I mean, when did you start doing this and why? I started about seven years ago. Um, I was bogged down with uh, some mental health issues that um, started at work. I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, and um, I was having panic attacks and really negative thoughts along the way. And then eventually my immune system started to turn on me as well, and I started getting a series of autoimmune disorders from really bad stomach attacks, early onset Crohn's, and my beard and my hair would start falling out in patches. And uh, I actually started getting alopecia and then started getting sick quite a bit. And then um, in seeking help and counseling, I was diagnosed a series of medications like um, different types of the Ativan family and Xanax and whatnot. And I finally was just kind of compounding some of my other issues at the time. So um, what I started doing was anytime I would uh, feel the need to take a pill or to have maybe a drink if I wasn't celebrating or having a dark thought, I would just go and plunge into my uh, cold shower or cold lake if I happen to have one nearby. And I would find, I would come out and I would feel tip top, like my um, 
state would be altered. It would be heightened. I'd come out feeling better than I did before. I'd be in control of my emotions. Um, inflammatory dis disorders started going away. Um, no cases of autoimmune disease kicking back up. No stomach attacks. My beard filled back in fully. Um, I started feeling amazing well-being through the roof. And it was about six months to a year into this journey. I told one of my best friends, Daryl Beaton, about what I was doing, my alternative protocol. And he mentioned a Dutchman named Wim Hof, who at the time held like 26 world records and um, started taking his skill set into a laboratory setting, where in one case he was ejected with an endotoxin, a, a membrane of the uh, a membrane of E. coli that causes people when injected to have a very adverse reaction, flu-like symptoms, um, fevers, feeling very ill for about five to eight hours. And um, when he was injected, he was able to resist the um, negative effects that this causes. It causes a negative innate immune system reaction, which leads to all the inflammatory and um, negative symptoms. But he was able just to sit through it the same way he would sit through an ice bath without um, succumbing to the symptoms or the, the shakiness or anything like that. And he was able to demonstrate that he could control his anatomic nervous system and his, his immune system, which up to that point, people thought no humans had the ability of doing. So at first they figured just because he was uh, a bit of an outlier, it seemed at the time, they, uh, they, they said that you're an exception to a confirmed rule in science. And it was at that point he said, if you gave me 12 um, test subjects, volunteers to come back in a week or two to train them in my method, that I could have each one of them coming back and uh, resisting the endotoxin experiments as well. And sure enough, they did. And each one of them came back. They were injected with the endotoxin. They were able to just sit through it comfortably the same way that he did. While they had another test group of other another 20 people all injected. And um, as per usual with that injection, they all got very ill and sick. And that was the beginning of his adventure into um, a laboratory setting, kind of bringing these Eastern meditative Tibetan monk practices into Western sciences and the laboratory settings and, and actually grounding them in science and, and speculation so that there couldn't be any doubt left into it, which was for me at the time was huge because I went from just kind of being a wingnut, taking all these cold showers and jumping in ice lakes to actually having scientific validation. So it was at that point I sort of doubled down. And uh, since then I've gone in, and traveled and trained with Wim Hof twice and um, I'm actually in the process of becoming a Wim Hof Method instructor. Um, another one of his experiments was at Wayne State University, where they took him and a bunch of other test subjects. That's him right there. That's me creeping up behind him. Um, they put him in an MRI and a cold suit. And um, they, they found that what this, this cold suit would do, it's like a rubber suit that fills up with cold water. And it, uh, that way you can kind of see what's going on in people's brains when they're exposed to the stresses of the cold. So what happened with all the other people that they put in this suit into this MRI, they could see in the part of their brain that's lit up during states of well-being called the ensola. I believe what is what it's called is when the cold would come in for the average person, it would shut off and that person would be in distress. But what started happening with Wim 
was his insula, which shut off the a part associated with well with well being, and then a portion of his brain stem in his reptilian brain called the periaqueductal gray hemisphere would light up and start engaging. And this is the part of the brain associated with endogenous cannabinoids and endogenous opioids. So he was actually sitting there getting high on his own supply <laughs> while everybody else, they're distressed. And I, that's what I'd like to, I have never been in an MRI, but while I'm doing these long extended ice baths, or if I'm having maybe a tough day, a stressful day from work or something like that, I feel like it's that mindset that's being triggered, like an, an ability to kind of relax, control your own um, well-being, your own your own state of well-being. Well, and, and that's and, what I want to. I want to pick your brain about that, Wes, because I think, and and maybe you can take us back through. Um, you have, as you say, unofficially held the Guinness World Record on at least two occasions uh, for for uh, a duration of ice bath that's been held before by Wim Hof and, and by other people uh, around the world. And it seems to me to, to actually change on a relatively regular basis. People are tacking on 10, 20, 30 minutes at a time, and it's close to three hours now. Uh, you've held it, as mentioned in past, on a couple of occasions. Can you take us, I mean, two hours and 20 minutes in an ice bath what is your mental state at that point? The average person won't, I don't think, myself included, be able to understand how you could do something like that for two out for the duration of a Star Wars movie. I don't think I could do it. So what's going on between your ears at that time? Yeah, well, again, like as that MRI showed, um, you're accessing the deeper realms of the brain, the more primal systems of your brain. Um, people sometimes tell me, you know, you're not supposed to be out in the cold like that, but you've got a mammal brain. It's just, uh, we don't access it so much because we think so much, right? And a lot of times it's that thinking and that cyclical thought that kind of spins you around in this negative vortex of, of, uh, of unpositive living. And so I'd say when I'm in there, one of the first things I do is I shut up that internal monologue, that inner critic, that little uh, kind of Woody Allen-like voice that's always questioning if you're going to be able to do it, you know, what are people looking at? What are they thinking of you? And then I just start feeling, I get really engaged with what's going on in my body, with my circulatory system, with my breath, with my heart rate. And it's at that point, I'm able to kind of sustain myself in that heightened stress of the cold and uh, not just the cold, as well as I do a lot of sauna, a lot of heat training. Um, I find fasting to be very beneficial as well. Any kind of uh healthy stress that you can start a practice with, you can use that in a kind of a parallel way into life's everyday negative scenarios that happen. As I mentioned yesterday to you, I had a bit of a flood in my bathroom and um, it was very stressful at first, but I kind of just went into the same mindset that I go into as I'm getting into an ice bath, calm myself down and be like, okay, I got to call so-and-so, I got to do this, make sure this is, and then all of a sudden it's, it's just going with the flow. You know, you're not stressing out about it. You're not panicking. You're not, your mind isn't spinning around. You're just kind of dealing with the scenario, feeling what's works, works best is what I'd say. It's, it's sort of a, it builds your mind body connection, which I think a lot of people could really use these days. Cause um, a lot of folks out there are struggling with mental illness and, and various uh, addictions and negative proclivities that um, are holding them back and preventing them from truly amounting to their full potential. 
And uh, for me, it, it's it's great to go and, and break the world record. But like, I didn't break the world record this time. I, I sat in there for about an hour and a half. And it was a new setting for me. I had lots of friends and family and people watching. And for me, when I have done these two-hour ice baths before, I get out and I've got a bit of an afterdrop is what they call it. It looks like I'm in a lot of pain. And as I'm trying to advocate these healthy stresses as a supplemental means of treatment to go with Western medicine, the last thing I want to do is come out and look like I need to be carried away in a stretcher as I'm trying to illustrate the healthy benefits of it. So that hour and a half, I was actually able to get out, walk myself to a warm shower, take about 10 minutes in there, and then come back. And then I was selling raffle tickets and explaining to everybody why I'm not dead of hypothermia. So that in itself was the big win for me for the day, um, as well as it, it's uh, still fall time. And I haven't really acclimatized into the winter as I have. The previous uh, two-hour ice bath that I did was in February after I had a lot more time kind of acclimatizing myself into the winter. You're a, uh, a legend, first of all. And uh, I think that uh, I have now don't try to deflect the praise, Wesley. Uh, I will apply it if I so choose and if I feel led. And I do because you're the only person I know that's held the world record twice for the ice bath. Uh, but more importantly and more seriously, Wes, we know that uh, mental health uh, is such an important conversation to have in particular, not exclusive to, but in particular among first responders. And I know that you've had a huge impact on your colleagues uh, on the Edmonton Fire Department uh, with your personal journey and how openly you've spoken about it. I feel like, no pun intended, we're just we're just talking about the tip of the iceberg right now, uh, Wes, and we'll have to get you back on the show. You and I have been talking about this. We'll get you on with Wim Hof. Uh, I think that would be a great interview to have. I applaud your effort this weekend. I'm so proud of you, my man. Are you still? Ra- I saw that you'd raised like thousands of dollars already for muscular dystrophy. Uh, is that fundraiser still open? You want us to send our audience members anywhere right now? Sure. Well, the 50-50 is done, and we're collecting raffle tickets. You can go to NBC Canada, and I believe there's still a virtual fill the boot. So if you're interested there in making a donation. But yes, the night was a big success. I mean, over the last year, our fundraising efforts have been hindered for obvious reasons and we're able to raise $12,000. So Amazing. we're all very happy. Yeah. Thank you very much for the praise. And uh, I, that really means a lot of everything you just said. So thank you so much, Ryan. I'm proud of you, man. I look forward to the next time our paths cross in person. Thanks for doing the show. Thank you kindly. It's my pleasure. You got it. That's uh, Wes Bauman, uh, a two-time world record holder in the ice bath uh, and just a hell of a guy. I like that Wes talked about, and I want to mention this one more time. I think it's really important. He talked about this approach as a supplement to Western medicine for him personally uh, in consultation with his health professionals found that some of the drugs that he was being prescribed were not working for him, were in fact exacerbating the issue. But he did that in consultation with a physician. And it's very important to remember that that is uh, an integral part of a healthy approach to mental health management. Uh, This show in no way wants to suggest that you should go, as they say, off your meds without consulting with your physician. I just think that Wes's story is remarkable. And and I happen to know from talking to him several times, and he basically told us as much today, uh, that his involvement in the ice bath has essentially turned his life around, which is absolutely incredible. Journalist Brandy Morin, in just a moment, right now I want to remind you that October is the biggest sale of the year at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge 
They've got those brand new Dodge Durangos in, absolutely beautiful trucks, and the selection. I mean, they've got more than 50 of them just off the trailer at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. That new Jeep Grand Cherokee L, that's the first time the Grand Cherokee's come with a third row of seating. The seven-passenger Grand Cherokee. And then, of course, the back-to-back-to-back, three-time, three-peat Motor Trend Truck of the Year, the Dodge Ram 1500. They just got more than 330 of them at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. You can find them online via the sponsor tab on our website ryanjesperson.com or go see them in person if you're looking for somewhere to park your ride and you're heading out of town maybe off to a sunnier locale you've been waiting for a year and a half you're on your way uh, somewhere hot over the next little while keep in mind you can choose non-stop service right now flying out of edmonton international airport eia non-stop edmonton to san diego california this winter while you're doing that Why not park your money in the bank by parking your car at JetSet? If you go to JetSetParking.com and use the promo code REALTALK, you're going to be able to park for $8 a day. It's more than a 50% discount. $8 a day to park at JetSet Parking. That's any travel by the end of 2022. You can book it ahead of time. Right now, it's got to be at least 24 hours ahead of time at JetSetParking.com. They're locally owned and you'll love them. I guarantee it. Our next guest uh, has been a good friend of this show and has appeared here several times covering different stories impacting Indigenous people in Canada. She herself, Métis, she's an award-winning storyteller. You've likely seen her work on the CBC, on the Today Media Network, the Aboriginal People's Television Network, APTN, uh, National News, and she's most recently been covering the Ferry Creek Blockade on Vancouver Island. It's a pleasure to welcome back to the show, Brandy Morin. It's good to see you, my friend. Tonse, hi, how are you? <laughs> I'm all right. We've been, you've been uh, so gracious in talking. First of all, uh, for those watching on YouTube, we see a feline has just entered the mix yeah. and, and the show is very pro-pet. Who, who is this hanging out with you today? Oh, this is Arlo. <laughs> Arlo, I love that name. Is it, it, Arlo must have uh, missed Mama. Mama's been gone yeah. for a while. Mama's been on the road. Absolutely. Actually, it's been a crazy summer, Ryan. I've actually been doing uh, working for National Geographic and uh, all this summer. And I was just on assignment on Vancouver Island for Al Jazeera English. So it's it's been busy. Uh, Brandy, what drew you? I mean, aside from the obvious, I think that the curiosity, uh, the fascination that millions of Canadians have uh, with what's happening at this blockade on Vancouver Island right now. But what was it that kind of lit that fire under you where you said, I need to go out there and not just for a day? I mean, you were out there posting videos and and tweeting about it and and, and obviously providing uh, sort of frontline coverage that not a lot of people had seen, most especially from an accredited journalist. What was it that prompted you to get out there? Yeah, so I first went out in June. I went there on assignment uh, with Ricochet Media with the support of Journalists for Human Rights. So I was there in early June covering for about a week as well. Um, So I always had the intent to go back. And so Al Jazeera approached me with an award-winning filmmaker that I was working with uh, for some story ideas. And I said, let's go to Ferry Creek. And we're telling these stories from the Indigenous perspective. So I knew that um, the intensity of what's going on there was, you know, raising. And I just wanted to get back out there and kind of like show the world what's going on there. Because honestly, it's insanity. 
Okay, well, the, I mean, these blockades have been in place for more than a year. Uh, people that are watching this interview on YouTube are going to be able to see. We appreciate you sharing your video with us, and we're going to play as much of it as we can, as, as, as they say, as B-roll, while you, while you tell us what you saw. When you say that this is, quote, insanity, what do you mean exactly? I mean, it's a war zone out there. <laughs> this is something that we do not see in Canada. So it's been named now the largest act of civil disobedience in Canadian history. And there is an injunction that the logging company there, Till Jones, uh, has uh, been granted uh, against the uh, blockaders there that are working to protect this old growth forest from being logged. And um, it, it's it's been in and out of the courts. The uh, police uh, just had their injunction or sorry the company just had their injunction granted again so police are in there enforcing there's literally hundreds of uh civilians demonstrators uh in and out of these uh woods uh blockading different roads at different camps and like tr literal troops of rcmp going in there and it's a cat and mouse chase. There are hel rcmp helicopters there's drones there's tactical units I witnessed police violence. It was it was the most it was the craziest, most traumatic assignment I've ever experienced. Uh, I don't hear journalists. Uh, well, I mean, geez, you, you referred to it as a war zone. I was I was just going to say you don't hear journalists outside of war zones and perhaps on on as as they would call the spot news, the crime beat. Uh, crime beat and, and and court coverage can be can be traumatizing, certainly for journalists. But you don't hear the word invoked a lot. Um, you're a veteran journalist, Brandy. I mean, you've been telling stories for years. What set this one apart? Because because I know this isn't the first one you've really sunk your teeth into. This is hardly your first story of substance, we might say. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm an indigenous storyteller. And so I am affected by these stories. And I always have been. Um, so this one particularly witnessing the police violence they're witnessing rcmp removing apache that woman whose territories that that is on um you know witnessing the them remove her arrest her she uh went unconscious it was very very traumatic because we have a history of violence against against indigenous people in this country. We have a crisis of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls going on. So, um, I mean, it, it was horrible. She was screaming in pain, and then you know, pa you know, passing out, and um, just being there because of the history. Because I'm indigenous, the RCMP aren't respecting media out there as it is. They've the media has taken the RCMP to court over the summer uh, against. Uh, regarding restricting media access and the media won uh, in that. The RCMP uh, filed an affidavit against me personally this summer from my coverage there in June, and I was able to prove their allegations against me wrong. It's not, it's a volatile situation. And so I myself had an experience there where I didn't feel safe. And you're literally like walking down logging roads in the mountain and um, at points where I'm by myself trying to go uh, to these different um, locations back and forth. And I have helicopters literally hovering, you know, hovering like 30 feet above me and like drones following me. That's very traumatic. That's where warfare stuff they have, like tactical units out there, you know, they call them the greens and you're witnessing, you know, this violence against 
you know, these uh, people that are, are there to, you know, protect the land that they strongly, strongly believe is the, you know, the thing to do. Um, and, and the police are in there um, enforcing this injunction. It's a civil injunction by the company. It's not even a criminal injunction. So there's nobody there to keep the RCMP accountable either. Uh, very little. Um, the only accountability they have is media and there's hardly any media out there. So it's like it's 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 insane. I, I just I was affected by Ryan hugely. Can I just to clarify, Brandy, you were clearly identified or identifying yourself as a journalist and there was a drone uh, which, oh, which yeah. you say is operated by RCMP specifically following you. I mean, they were following everybody, but I mean, yeah, they would, it would swoop down on me. And like, I have footage, like I have footage of the helicopter even above me because I was freaked out. But I mean, the, the territory is so vast there and there's so many different people that the, these RCMP and these drones are kind of like everywhere. Um, and so maybe they, they came, you know, to check me out and didn't know who I was, but still I was identified and I had um, other encounters with them there where I was threatened. Like I was threatened by a police officer as a member of the media. And like, it was, it was a, it was a really scary moment. Do you mind me asking what the police officer said to you? Yeah. So uh, on one of, I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday. um, So there, the police access there has been very, inconsistent for media. So uh, the day before we were given free access to go and um, do our coverage between these different enforcements that they were doing. The next day we came in and uh, we weren't fully prepared because we were checking out what was going to happen. And um, I was freezing cold. I only had a sweater. We didn't have any supplies with us, no water. All of a sudden the police put up this injunction, um, you know, tape that nobody could cross over. We were back with these Uh, demonstrators embedded with them Um, and I said you know I tried to to leave to go and and walk back to our vehicles about a you know 20 minute walk away to get a sweater to get water to get more supplies and I was denied they said you're not going anywhere you're staying there they were very condescending very in my face so I pushed back a little bit because they knew I was media and they they said okay you can leave but you have to, so it's hard to explain, um, but you have to go over there to those bushes over there, bushwhack through the bush, which is what they called it, find a road on the other side, walk up that road and get your stuff. And so I was like, wow, are you serious? Because there was other ways that I could go out. And so I said, okay. And on my way down, there was this uh, other road that I had to cross and this big burly uh, police officer who I later found out was the commander of that unit ran up to me and he was in my face. His face was covered. And he said, you get and you bushwhack through those bushes. He says, if I see you over there in those bushes, there'll be consequences. Mm. So this is an intense moment. There's no cell service out there. You're in the bush. I'm a journalist. I'm not a criminal. And so I like thinking, holy, if they see me in there, are they going to shoot me? Like, what does consequences mean? Like, this is hardcore actions that they're doing out there. So I tried to bushwhack through the bush and it was impossible because it's thick brush. There's holes. I could have broken my leg. I did end up cutting my leg. My leg was bleeding. So I came back and I'm like, I can't, I'll just stay here. I guess they said, you know, yeah, it could be hours. You could be here all day. 
And so the same RCMP came running back up to me when I came back on the road to go back behind the line. And he said, you should have known better. You should have dressed for this weather and was very condescending. And he said, get back over there with your friends and just treated me horribly. And I don't think the RCMP really have the media training or the concepts of what journalists do that we go and we embed, mm-hmm. you know, with uh, with what's going on. And it was it was alarming because we couldn't leave as media and we didn't know what what actions we're going to have. Like we were backed into a corner going up a mountain surrounded by helicopters and drones and and police with no cell service like that's. That's not that's scary. That doesn't happen. <laughs> it doesn't. No. And 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 you're right. And I think that uh, I mean, just as a comment, and it might be an obvious one. I think that the implications here on a communications front with regards to the RCMP have been yeah. have been difficult. And I think yeah. that 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 Canada's National Police Force has uh, some reconciling to do when it comes to even some of the videos that have been posted of some of the comments made by officers on the front line. I acknowledge it's a stressful situation for everybody, but some of the comments have been totally unacceptable. Uh, Brandy Morin's our guest, a journalist. If you're just joining us live streaming this audio on Mixler, Brandy, back on uh, October 20th, uh, just about a week ago, I, I spoke to Eric Denhoff. Uh, Eric's a former deputy government minister. He's been a, a treaty negotiator in past. He's got a ton of experience uh, with these types of conflicts. And when we asked him about who is involved in the protest, when we asked him about the perspectives of the, the Pachidat First Nations and others in this, I want, I want to get you to comment on what Eric had to say. Uh, this is what he offered up. This from six days ago on Real Talk. For lots of Indigenous people, they disagree with the governments, the Indigenous governments. You know, there are members of Pachidat, members of Huayat, members of Dididat who disagree with their government's decisions uh, around land use management in the area. And they say we want it all protected and that sort of thing. Just like in our society, you know, we have, you know, uh, a good significant opposition on any major issue. Indigenous communities are no different. But they just had in Huayat, which has a government made up of uh, traditional leaders, hereditary chiefs and elected leaders, they just had a community vote all over again on the whole old growth issue. Should we stop at 100 percent? Should we you know, manage it uh, carefully, but do some old growth logging and all that? And the community overwhelmingly voted saying, we think we should manage this carefully, productively, but probably we're going to continue to do some old growth harvesting as long as we can retain large amounts. As I say, we add the size of every soccer field in Europe on southern Vancouver Island and old growth every year. So, so it's a debate within the Indigenous community. It's a debate within the non-Indigenous community. Uh, and my point is just, you can't just be simplistic about it. It's a very complicated issue. It's been going on in BC for 40 years. Fair comment from Mr. Denhoff? Absolutely. It's a it's a incredibly complex uh, issue, especially when it comes to, you know, the Indigenous aspect. So I you know, got perspectives specifically from, um, you know, traditional Pachidat people, as well as the elected leadership. And they, there is division, you know, within the own community. But I need to tell you that also, I mean, it's a community that is surrounded by this incredible, you know, beauty of this temperate rainforest and, you know, on the ocean. And it is just living in complete poverty i mean you 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 just go around and drive there and and it's it's devastation it's not only devastation in the physicality there's you know a, a lot of different struggles that are happening there and so you know in my um in my um, experience in these type of situations a lot of times these nations are kind of like 
you know, uh, forced into these positions to, uh, you know, get into these economic uh, uh, developments on their traditional territories that could potentially, you know, um, not be sustainable uh, because of the economics, you know, situations that they're in. So I heard, um, you know, a mix of support and against, but I can tell you firsthand, Ryan, that I seen with my eyes what's going on there. Like it's, it's, um, that land is just cut up whether they whether they say that um that's sustainable or not what we saw and then you know we had our own drones to to see what's going on there it's the last of of the last of that kind that these people are trying to uh, preserve you know for now and future generations yeah i had a and i mean i i have i guess you know, I resonated with a comment that, that Eric, when, when we talked to him, kind of uh, had a bit of an indictment on on many Canadians that are keeping an eye on this story. And I can't remember what he called us, but sort of like condo dwelling, cappuccino sucking liberals or something like this, you know, and uh, <laughs> he's there right. There's a because, lot of hippies out there. Yeah, there are a lot of hippies, a lot of urban hippies. And, and, and I don't mean to make light of it, of course. But, you know, you know, we have, you know, my, our house is finished in cedar shakes and I sat around a stunning concrete and cedar plank mm-hmm. dining room table a couple of weeks ago and marveled at the cedar slab and and all we just talk about how beautiful it is and all these things and that's right and and we use lumber and we use timber and we have these these appetites for the finer things for the rare things i mean as soon as the white rhino was revealed to have only one living male left what did all the, I mean, not everybody, but a lot of people wanted to be the one to kill the last living white rhino. There's something about humans and the way that we're wired that's really yeah. discouraging. And I think there's a lot of context to be had, Brandy. But, uh, yeah. you know, between the, the time that you and I last spoke, I was out on Valdez Island, which is is not a stone's throw away from where the Ferry Creek blockade is, but in the same part of Canada ish. And we sat at the and I literally hugged these trees on purpose. I just hugged these magnificent cedars and these Douglas firs that are hundreds and hundreds of years old. And it's hard to describe. It I mean, it's like it's, it's like hugging a 12 story building and the stories they could tell. And then you'd see the odd one. Yeah. I was on a property that was formerly logged and uh, you see the footprint. And I, and I walked across one, a stump and, and they're more than 10 feet across more than 10 yeah. feet across. Wow. Unbelievable. And so it does invoke, I mean, there needs to be context, but it does invoke emotion in us. And I know for you as a storyteller uh, and, 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 you know, you do uh, your best as a journalist, uh, I'm talking about all journalists to be objective, but mm. sometimes you emotionally connect with something, don't you? Especially embedded oh, like you were. Absolutely. Yes, I, yes, I do. And again, you have to understand that I'm an indigenous woman. I see this from a different perspective. I'm not telling the stories from a legacy colonial media perspective either, Ryan. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's a totally different experience for me. And I think anybody that's a human being to go there and experience this kind of thing, which is literally the last of its kind in the world would be, you know, would connect, definitely yeah. connect. Brandy, you know, with, with, um, I know we have to let you go because you have another interview right now and we want to respect that. Um, I, I'm such a big fan of your work. People can follow you on Twitter at songstress28. They can follow you on Instagram if they want to see all of your coverage at Be More in Stories. Uh, and of course, they can look for uh, what's coming up. Um, continue your amazing work. Uh, really, CBC Indigenous, APTN, Al Jazeera, National Geographic. I mean, it's a remarkable list, Brandy. Your storytelling in high demand. Thanks for adding us to that list. 
Oh, hi, hi, Ryan. Thank you. You got it. And bye to Arlo too. Arlo, people are people are really connected with Arlo too. It's it's always you know. You know what I like about this, to be honest, just to say it, I like sometimes when it's like it's a serious story, but it's also like there's a cat walking across the screen. And I like these reminders that this is like real life, real conversations. You know, sometimes you laugh at a funeral, right? Maybe not like totally out loud at the wrong time. Um, but the ways that people cope with emotion, a mm-hmm. lot of times we need to blow off a little steam sometimes and find the finer things. Go for a walk, breathe the fresh air, watch the sunrise or the sunset, pet a cat, walk a dog. I loved on the live chat. Someone was saying, you know, the cat wanted to comfort Brandy as mm. she as she was sharing about mm. how intense the experience was. I yeah, I loved watching Arlo. I love being welcomed in. I mean, it's such a privilege to be welcomed into folks' homes, isn't it? Via Zoom. Brandy's doing an amazing job. That video is remarkable. Again, you can find her on Instagram at B Morin Stories. Sam, can you tee up the other Denhoff clip for me? I, I don't want to assume that every single person that tunes into Real Talk, every single person that joins us is with us for two hours every single day. And uh, so I wanted to get to this clip. It's an interview certainly worth watching. Uh, Eric's got amazing insight. And we didn't just talk to him. You know what? I, I'm not going to sort of drop names. But I heard from no fewer than five former Alberta cabinet ministers from technically three different parties, two different conservative parties and uh, the NDP. I heard from five different former ministers after our Eric Denhoff interview, all singing his praises and talking about how widely revered he was uh, in government work. Also a straight shooter. And, and here's that clip. I was talking about this is Eric Denhoff talking about some of the people that are out at those Ferry Creek blockades. We're all, as I say, cappuccino sucking condo dwelling urban liberals in the morning saying we've got to recognize indigenous race. We have to reconcile. But then in the afternoon, having logged, you know, for 100 years and made billions of dollars out of it as white people and induced these First Nations to get into the forestry business for the last 20 years. Why did you get into business? Why don't you get jobs? Why don't you be more like us, you know? Then we come along, having juiced all our money out of the logging thing, you know, for 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 a century, and we we get up in the morning and the you know wealthy Victorian Vancouverites, and we and, and everybody wanders out for a weekend camping trip to uh, the uh, Fairy Creek old growth things to stop the logging, and uh, and the Apache that and and Hawaii and others say, well, wait a sec, this is our territory. You, you don't just come in here and be new modern day colonialists telling us what to do. That was Eric Denhoff on this show on October 20th. If you missed that interview, I encourage you to check it out. Of course, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can subscribe to our podcast anywhere you subscribe to podcasts. Thanks to everybody that rates and reviews what we're doing. And of course, that shares our content. It means a lot to us. If you review our podcast, you never know. You may wind up as the featured reviewer on our Real Talk Sunday message. That's the email we send out every Sunday evening to let you know who's coming up next week on the show. You can subscribe to that email, obviously for free, by scrolling to the bottom of the page at ryanjesperson.com. And there has been an adjustment to our lineup. And I know that some people are going to be disappointed to hear that we've had to reschedule Dr. Jody Carrington on Friday because another Jody's going to join us. 
Yes, Jody Wilson-Raybolt will be joining us on Friday, uh, got confirmed. So we're going to, I mean, it's it's tough when we have so many high caliber guests. So Everybody banging down our door. Like, we want to be on Real Talk. We want to be on Real Talk. <laughs> so Jody Wilson-Raybould uh, will take us into, I mean, obviously there's so much to talk about with her, but I'm curious uh, for her take on the Prime Minister's cabinet shuffle. This has been underway as we've been doing this show. So, I mean, if you're listening to this, as the majority of you will later in the afternoon, this may be old news to you, but we knew that that Christia Freeland, uh, I should work on my pronunciation, Christia Freeland, uh, Deputy Prime Minister, Minister of Finance, she retains those roles. Omar Algabra, uh, Minister of Transport, Anita Anand, Minister of National Defense. That's what people were speculating, that uh, Minister Anand would lead uh, the defense portfolio. Carolyn Bennett uh, moves to Minister of Health. Uh, Minister of Health and Addictions, Associate Minister of Health. That's a high profile job for the former uh, Minister of Indigenous uh, Relations, Marie Claude Bibo, Minister of Agriculture. Uh, Bill Blair is going to serve as Minister of Emergency Preparedness and President of the Queen's Privy Council for Canada. Uh, out of Edmonton, it's Randy Boissonneau that is named a cabinet minister, swears in today, Minister of Tourism and Associate Minister of Finance. Uh, Francois-Philippe Champagne, Minister of Innovation, Science and Commerce. Jean-Yves Duclos, Canada's new Minister of Health. And, and we'll take a look at, at more of this uh, as this story unfolds. And of course, tomorrow we mentioned Stephen Gilbeau as he heads off to the COP26 conference, Minister of Environment and Climate Change. Patty Haidu uh, moved from uh, Minister of Health to Minister of Indigenous Services. Uh, which is an interesting reassignment, obviously an important role there. Uh, Mark Holland will be the uh, House leader, leader of the government in the House of Commons. Ahmed Hussein, Minister of Housing and Diversity and Inclusion. And the list goes on tomorrow. Uh, we're going to have a couple of commentators that are going to be joining us. Melanie Jolie, the Minister for Foreign Affairs. I keep trying to wrap this and move on, but I'm just like, I'm, I know like everybody else. I'm like, let's get into the list. Let's talk about this. Tomorrow, we'll dedicate it. Uh, some fulsome discussion on this, some fulsome discussion and analysis, uh, including the new Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada, David Lametti. I knew I could fit one more in there. <laughs> Let me remind you how proud we are to partner with the team at Kubi Renewable Energy. Kubi Energy providing solar energy solutions to power your life. You know, I love hearing from real talkers that have taken us up on the offer to just go ahead and get a free quote from kubienergy.ca. I talked to Jake Kubiski, the CEO, the founder of Kubi Energy. What a great story he has from a career in oil and gas into a career in solar. Uh, he's seen it all. He's done the work. And I said, hey, so how's the real talk thing? This is a peek behind the curtain, real talkers. I said, so how's the partnership going? You know, positive reflections on Monday. And he goes, buddy, he said, you wouldn't believe your audience. I said, I think I would believe them. As a matter of fact, he said the oh, the response has been overwhelming. So real talkers, you're keeping the installers at Kubi Energy busy, which is great to hear. They've got offices in Edmonton and Kamloops. Their Tesla certified installers are all either journeymen or apprentices. So, you know, there's not somebody up there using like, you know, old coat hangers and hockey tape to, you know, make the electricity pass through the thing. I see our engineer in-house, Sam Brooks, just wincing. You know what I'm talking about, though? The, the, every, all of us know one person that goes, I just install it myself. I've been that person. Not not with solar <laughs> no, panels. Sam, you're an engineer. But I've been that. Yeah, but you're an engineer. Fair. It's different. <laughs> Sam's like, I am that person. I, I am that person. But it's different if an engineer versus like Yeah, okay. Me. I, I know how to read building code. So Yeah, you know how yeah. to read building code. You understand things like, you know, wire hot, bad, wire cold, okay. You know, all the important things you need to know when installing solar panels on your roof. Uh, the position of this show is, unless you're hiring Sam Brooks, don't because we need him here 
look to Kubi Energy at kubienergy.ca. If you follow me on Twitter and Instagram, you also know how excited I was uh, to announce that we're partnering with La Crema Vineyard as our Real Talk Wine of the Month. You can find them online at lacrema.com and learn more about the 30 years that they've spent exploring different expressions of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay from two of the most notable wine growing regions in the world. I'm talking along the Oregon and California coast. I tweeted last, uh, well, I guess a couple of days ago that I had tracked down La Crema wine at Sherbrooke Liquor Store in Edmonton. Of course, you can find it or ask for it anywhere you pick up your fine wines, whether it's Costco, whether it's uh, Wine and Beyond, or your favorite neighborhood Mon Pa type store. Ask for La Crema, our official wine sponsor for the month of October, right here on Real Talk. How much do you know about geothermal energy? I mean, people talk about it when people are talking about whether it's Canada's energy evolution, when people are talking about evolving Alberta's energy industry, when people are talking about sustainability around the world. Geothermal is one of the energy forms that continues to pop up in conversation. We thought we might do a deep dive here, not just on the idea around it, but how feasible, how doable it might be right here in Canada, right here in our own backyard. Uh, Dr. Jonathan Banks is a research associate in the University of Alberta's Department of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences. He's the lead investigator on a project looking at bringing geothermal energy production to so-called legacy energy infrastructure. Dr. Banks, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for making time for us. Yeah, thanks for having me. And my my apologies to uh, Jody and anybody who is... uh Looking forward to a more high-profile guest. I guess. Uh, no, 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 Jody. No, Jody <laughs> got bumped for Jody Wilson Raybould, pal. You're you're oh, you're, right you're, okay, you're locked in here right now. But listen, you're the guy. We were we were talking uh, in a production meeting off air, and we're like, we want to talk about geothermal. Who's the guy? And you are the guy. So welcome. Uh, we would have bumped people for you, pal. No problem. All right. All right. I'll take it. <laughs> for those Thanks. of you, know, I mean, I, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to say that I would have a general working knowledge of geothermal, but I wouldn't be able to explain it beyond an elementary school level. Uh, why don't we start there? What are we talking about? Uh, well, and it, uh, most simply put, geothermal energy is uh, thermal energy heat that's stored beneath the Earth's subsurface or beneath the Earth's surface, I should say. Um, a lot of people, when they think of geothermal energy, they think about um, uh, what are called ground source heat pumps, which is what your aunt or your uncle might have on a single family home or a small residential development uh, that basically uses the Earth's thermal properties as an insulator and a thermal storage medium. Um, but that's actually storing solar energy. That's storing heat that's in the air seasonally. Uh, when we talk about geothermal energy, we're talking about uh, thermal energy that's stored deeper in the Earth's crust, usually a few kilometers. Um, in, in Alberta, typically, we talk between three and five kilometers b- below the surface of the Earth. And there's um, that's actually the heat that's stored in the Earth's rocks. And then by circulating a fluid through those rocks, you can bring the heat up to the surface and then you can use it for industrial purposes like uh, direct use of the heat, heating a building or whatever, or making electricity if it's hot enough. So it, like, you know, this is probably a terrible example, but but in, in kind of in a way, when you talk about uh, flushing liquid down there to bring it in a way, is it is it kind of similar to fracking or not at all? 
Uh, there can be fracking involved depending on the properties of the reservoir you're trying to use for geothermal energy. Uh, but a lot of times the water is already there. Mm. Um, and so it's a matter of pumping the water up, taking the heat out, and then putting it back in the ground to maintain the pressure in the reservoir for long-term sustainable circulation. Uh, the, the issue of fracking specifically in geothermal systems is a controversial one. Um, in many jurisdictions around the world, this is not allowed, so it's, it's out of the question. Um, in Alberta, we have a, a more, um, let's say, favorable view on fracking. We, we do uh, fracking all the time in Alberta and other contexts. So uh, there's no specific restrictions on it. But whether or not fracking would be required to operate a geothermal system is, is, is a localized issue. It depends specifically on where you're trying to do your geothermal system. Doctor, is it is it uh, like, you know, we talk about, um, you know, Alberta's natural resources or you might talk about other parts of the world as well that have rich natural resources, depending on what we're talking about. In this case, talking about energy, uh, obviously, the oil reserves, the oil sands, uh, the natural gas reserves. Uh, I mean, it, it's it kind of matters where you are. Right. I mean, the business thrives uh, and the industry typically thrives and vis-a-vis the economy uh, when you're in the right spot. Does yeah. everybody on planet Earth have similar natural resources when it comes to geothermal or are there pockets similar to traditional oil and gas that would be better suited for this type of development? Um, it's definitely more the latter. So uh, geothermal energy has been exploited uh, commercially for power by humans for over 100 years and has been used by indigenous groups for direct use of the heat, also in a spiritual sense, um, for uh, centuries, if not millennia. Um, and so where it's typically been exploited for power, and I'm talking about electrical power now, are over geologic hotspots. So these are tectonically or volcanically active areas where there are very high temperatures right below the surface. So Iceland, parts of California, parts of Italy, the Philippines, Indonesia, uh, these places are geothermal hotspots. And in these places, geothermal power has been exploited commercially for a long time. Uh, what we're trying to do with our research in Alberta is try to take advantage of more normative geothermal conditions around the world, uh, stuff that you might be able to find anywhere. Um, and in that regard, we talk about what's called the geothermal gradient, which is the rate at which temperature increases as you go beneath the Earth's surface. And in Alberta and throughout much of Western Canada, there is it's fairly representative of global geothermal conditions. Um, and so we feel that if we are able to commercially produce geothermal power in Alberta, that opens up the likelihood of being able to export that technology to other jurisdictions. Um, and so that has both an economic and environmental upside for geothermal production. And, and this is what we're really excited, I think, or let me use the word interested uh, to talk to you about, because this is where conversations are going, regardless of of whether you're coming at it, I think, through an environmental lens or whether you're coming at it through an economic lens, in other words, stimulating the economy or, or whether you're what I would think would be the average person who would be trying to find a balance between both of those conversations. Uh, what do you think Alberta's energy future could look like with with geothermal and and so-called traditional or legacy infrastructure? How, how can those two fit together? What have you been able to determine? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and in reality, it's always both. So, uh, you know, we are, uh, we're interested, all of us uh, cappuccino drinking condo dwellers are interested in 
the environmental aspects of this, but we see that new environmental technology is not adopted unless there's a commercial upside for the adopter. And that's just a reality. And, you know, the government has a role in creating favorable economic conditions for that at adoption. Um, specifically in related to Alberta, one of the reasons why Alberta and the University of Alberta have a, a very large strategic advantage in trying to advance this type of geothermal technology is because of our oil and gas industry. So because there are well over a half a million wells in Alberta, oil and gas wells, we actually, because of that, or as a sort of a side effect of that, we have a very clear picture of what the geothermal resource is like in Alberta. And that has allowed us as researchers and the nascent commercial development that's going on or the, the burgeoning commercial development, let's say, that's going on in Alberta to really minimize their upfront costs by hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, and so every single well that's been drilled in Alberta, we can use as a geothermal exploration well. So um, and that allows us to read. Yeah, go ahead. No, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but just pick up where you left off. But I mean, does this like is this sort of a, maybe not a solution, but maybe one approach to addressing the orphan well issue? I mean, this this remediation deficit that's, that's rumored to be in the billions of dollars. Oh, at least the billions of dollars. At yeah, least, yeah. Uh, there may be. Yeah, there may be an extra zero on that, uh, depending on who you ask. Um, the situation with orphan wells, um, a lot of people talk about or orphan wells and can we repurpose orphan wells for geothermal energy production? Really, the short answer to that question is no, not really. There's a reason why those wells have been orphans. Uh, either they're very old, uh, they've, they've run out of their useful lifespan, they've had some technical issues with them. So to physically repurpose that well in an operating geothermal system, you know, they're vanishingly, a vanishingly small percentage of them might have the ability to do that. But what those wells do tell us is where the geothermal energy is and what the properties of the reservoir that's holding the geothermal energy is. And that's already, or properties are, I should say, and that's already a substantial risk and cost reduction for the development of a commercial system. Um, and so it's not that they're useless, it's just that it's not the best strategy to try to repurpose them. Once we've identified an area where we want to do geothermal energy development, it just makes more economic sense to drill a new well because we want that well to operate for 100 years. Yeah. Um, and many of these orphan wells, they're already defunct for one reason or another. Can I can I also maybe humbly suggest that that's good news for drillers? It's good news for people whose whose skill sets and professional experience lies in in, uh, you know, I mean, sort of big picture, the energy business. I mean, this is on, on a number of fronts. I mean, I think there's environmental benefits. It seems to me to be cost yeah. benefits uh, seem to be so-called. It's a weird way to put it, but corporate benefits. But I think that there can also be ways to 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 really, you know, this could resonate with people in communities that have real skills uh, like drillers uh, that would love to get back to work. Absolutely. Um, and that's a great point also. And so and that also gets back to the, the original question that you asked, which is, um, you know, what is what does this look like in Alberta's economic future? Um, and so from a resource base, there's a lot of geothermal energy out there and there's a lot of it that could be exploited with existing technology. So we did a study with Alberta Innovates a number of years ago called the deep dive, which is a phrase that you used to kick off this segment, I noticed. Um, and we identified that using existing technology or with the incremental advances on existing technology, there might be enough geothermal power in Alberta to replace at least 10% of the coal that we're using in a relatively short order, uh, relatively short period of time. Uh, we also were able to identify that with some transformational technologies, for example, with the development of a better heat engine, something that can convert lower temperature heat 
um, to electricity. Sorry. Um, so you've got there's all- actually enough geothermal. No, go ahead. I keep stepping on your toes, Doc. Yeah, uh, there's actually enough geothermal energy out there to, to replace all of Alberta's electricity needs. Um, and I raised this point to the Alberta government a number of years ago uh, through Alberta Innovates and through um, Shannon Phillips, who was the Minister of Energy at the time. And the question that came up was, OK, you can replace all of our power with geothermal, but how is that going to replace the tens of billions of dollars of revenue that the oil and gas industry brings in? And I think that's a fair question. Um, and so we, so from there, we have to start to look at the peripheral economic advantages of developing geothermal power in Alberta. So the main peripheral economic advantage is not for home use. It's as an export technology. Yeah. Um, and so by developing the technology to develop geothermal power in Alberta, that, that becomes something that's applicable everywhere in the world. And then Canadian technology has a competitive advantage because we were the first across the line. I'm um, not being a, Doc, I don't want to be I don't want to be like a like a nerd and and sort of like I'm not correcting you on something. But I just want to I'm, I'm curious because if it was Shannon Phillips, you were talking to, of course, she'd be the minister of environment and parks. Mark yeah. Boyd was the minister of energy. And I'm just the reason why I ask is not to like get a point on a doctor, but it's because I'm curious to know if your correspondence would have been with the minister of environment or if it would have been with the minister of energy, because those are two obviously different i mean they, they intertwine at certain points yeah um but 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 if they're different conversations different portfolios no i sure. totally can see the point and i knew when it, i knew when it was coming out of my mouth that i, I think <laughs> i had that backwards so you you could have the point no, no problem no, but it was shannon phillips okay yeah, well it's, it was, it's it's like yeah. 44 to 1 right now so i'll take my point thank okay. you i don't i don't get shut out that's great news what do you what do you think about the current government i mean or or, or any alberta government i mean do you, do you get the sense that this is something and, and let me ask you sort of a two-part question doc like you know, you've got the government concerned about revenue. I would hope concerned about sustainability, the environment, et cetera, protecting the people, representing the people's wishes. And then you've also got industry. I mean, do you believe that there are willing partners? Is there legitimate interest from all stakeholders to pursue this in meaningful fashion? Uh, the short answer to that question is yes, absolutely. Um, about the question of politics, um, just full disclosure, I'm not Albertan. I'm not even Canadian. So I don't really have a uh, I don't really have a political stake in this. Um, I, I don't have a right to vote in Canada. So um, I, I'm, I'm basically just a guy walking around with a begging bowl. Um, I will say that when I first started working at the University of Alberta and we were really looking for significant funding for our research, I first reached out to industry partners, of which there weren't that many at the time. There were a few small startups um, and I had a not contentious, but a, a, a blunt conversation with the CEO of one of these companies. And he was just like, why are you asking us for money? You should be asking the government for money. And I thought, well, that's actually a pretty good idea. And so I started cold calling municipal government offices, uh, the mayors of places like Hinton, Grand Prairie, Grand Cash, you know, just small municipalities where we knew there was a geothermal resource and just as kind of like an information giving mission, like, hey, do you guys know you're sitting on top of a boatload of geothermal power? We'd like to help you get at it. Um, and I found there was overwhelmingly positive reception across the political spectrum wherever I went. I mean, in, uh, in those beginning days, this was back in 2014, I think, we must have sat before 10 councils and over 100 ministers and two, literally two people voted against funding our proposal, uh, which was funded. And so we worked on a very grassroots level to gain traction, which then rose all the way up to the highest tiers of the federal government as well. So now we have, 
significant funding internally in Alberta through agencies like Alberta Innovates. We also have significant federal funding through agencies like um, NRCAN and the Canada First Research Excellence Fund, which at the University of Alberta has been branded as Future Energy Systems. So we found broad political support across the spectrum. And I would, I will also, um, you know, uh, say in favor a little bit of the UCP in that when the UCP came into power, they rolled back a lot of funding that they had given for uh, the NDP's um, CCITF program. So the, the carbon mitigation program that Rachel Notley's government put into place when the UCP came into power, they pulled a lot of that funding back from their commitments, but they did not pull our funding back for geothermal. And I think they saw, because this is also favorable to Alberta industry, the main people who are going to take advantage of this technology are Alberta's oil and gas producers. So it's really a win-win across the board for everybody. It's good for the consumer. It's good for industry. It's good politically, even if it's from like a cynically optical, uh, optically cynical place, it's still good politically. Um, so we don't really see a lot of downside. We haven't got yeah. a lot of pushback on what we're proposing. Where things start to slow down is who's really willing to take a risk. Yeah, and th and that's where we see some hesitation. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I mean, it sounds like it could be one with obviously huge potential benefits. Um, we got to keep it real here. And so, I mean, just as you said, uh, not any real downfall. I mean, the question I have locked and loaded, Doc, is from Lalazaz on our live chat who simply wonders, is there a downside to geothermal? There's got to be some downside. Uh, what's the downside? Well, the main issue that we face in Alberta and throughout Western Canada is simply the nature of the resource. So it's really kind of right at the temperature where, where it's not electrical grade resource. Um, and so something would need to be done to, to boost it up to that. The fact that we have really frigid winters in Canada helps that because it creates a larger temperature differential. When people start to look at the downsides of geothermal energy, they start to look at some economics. Uh, it's got a high upfront capital cost. Um, and so, and then there are some environmental risks. So a lot of times geothermal reservoirs do need to be stimulated or fracked. Um, and that, uh, that raises environmental concerns, legitimate environmental concerns. The fact that we're not just removing water from a reservoir and then putting it down a disposal well in some far-flung regions, but we need to maintain the reservoir pressure adds to a risk of uh, what's called induced seismicity, uh, which are man-made earthquakes. Um, those are the two main disadvantages that I'd, I'd speak to. Uh, and then there's also always the question of um, ob obsolescence, you know, how long, I mean, we're all just waiting for the fusion people to get their act together, right? So, <laughs> you know i like that fight, so, fighting words so, yeah, yeah is that yeah, like is that like in the trades people, is that that's in the trades that's like how electricians always want to pick fights with drywall tapers is that it you and you guys and the fusion guys well i don't know anything about drywall but uh <laughs> i do know i, I do know, know that fusion I know is tapers, always just 10 years down the line a buddy yeah. of mine was a taper and he always used to say to me tapers don't get no respect in the trades he'd be like you come see on a job site go, we don't get any respect the tapers don't get any respect um i can tell uh i was going to suggest we could just use coal by the way to heat the to heat the water you know could uh no 
Okay. Um, uh, Sam Brooks, who's the technical, who's the technical. I mean, that that is that would be you know I, I, at least somebody would not be joking and would pose that scenario. Hey, that could help too. Well, communities, I, in all know? seriousness, one one project that we did have with an oil and gas producer was that they were taking their nuisance gas from the field and burning it on site to heat up their water. So there is the idea of a hybrid hydrocarbon. That sounds amazing. Geothermal system. Yeah, I wouldn't go with coal for that. The idea that we're no, off pitching is using uh, concentrated solar heat to boost the geothermal gradient. So if the geothermal fluid is coming out of the ground at 80 degrees Celsius, why not use some solar concentrators to heat it up to 120 degrees Celsius? Yeah. And, so it's, and that also smooths out the peaking curve of the solar. And when the solar is abundant in the summertime, that's when the temperature gradient with the air is reduced. So we need that extra heat. And then in the wintertime, when there isn't as much solar energy, we're taking advantage of the, the cold. Yeah. Um, don't so forget there are, if you, there are uh, questions about hybrids. Don't forget, if yeah. you need a free quote on solar, you can always just visit kubienergy.ca. Um, we, we happen to have a luxury on this show. Uh, our technical producer happens to be an engineer. And in conversations like this, I look over. It's okay, Sam. I think you should put yourself on camera here. I I look over, and he's just like, I can tell he has I, a I'm question. Buzzing on segments he, like he's, this, yeah. He's buzzing, and the question, Doc, is probably going to be way better than anything I've asked you. Brooksy, you mind taking over for a second? Yeah, I, sure. Hey, hey, Doctor Banks. That's good, Sam. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I think you've touched on this a little bit, but you know, part of uh, one thing that struck me is that like. Here in Alberta, we're used to drilling for fuels. We're used to digging a hole in the ground and taking out oil or, or gas or something that we can put in a tank and transport. Uh, geothermal, of course, has to be sort of used at the point that you dig the well. And, you know, what I'm wondering about is do you foresee a future where we start, you know, kind of striking where the iron's hot and finding locations that are optimized for geothermal and building power plants right there on site or should we be you know kind of looking to a place where we we build an infrastructure you know effectively of like steam pipes that that transport it and then we could also use it you know in theory as like a cogeneration technology yeah that is a, a great question so uh first of all as regarding electrical power uh that's not location specific. You can sell, we can produce electrical power in Alberta and sell it to California. Uh, so if you're producing electrical power, the, the issue of location is not so important. The issue of proximity to a power line is important because you need to get those electrons into the line. But once it's in, in the line, you, you can sell it anywhere. Uh, when we start talking about the direct use of heat in our models at the University of Alberta show that the both the economic and the environmental upside of using the geothermal energy directly as heat is about 10 times greater than turning it into electricity. Wow. Um, and that has a lot to do with the complicated electrical markets in Alberta and whatnot. But uh, both the carbon emissions reduction as well as the, the raw dollar value of the heat itself before it's converted to electricity is much greater. Uh, and that is something that does need to be used locally. And so we look at, again, peripheral businesses that could take advantage of a heat source in a far-flung location. Um, and it can be things, or it doesn't need, need to be far-flung. Far it can be something as trivial as melting snow off a road. Hmm. So the city of Edmonton's budget for keeping snow off the roads is in the tens of millions of dollars a year. Yeah, it's like 55 million. Um, and then it's not only year. keeping the snow off the road. It's like the snow is not going to melt, right? They need to take the snow somewhere and leave it there until June when it'll start to melt. And so if, even if you just heat that 
platform where they're storing all the snow so it melts that's saving the city a lot of money it's also saving a lot of the city a lot of money on the backside by you know because we know in edmonton we've got snowy season and we've got road repair season and the reason why the roads need to be repaired every summer is because the snow is killing them so something as trivial as keeping snow off the roads which does not require a high heat source you can melt snow off a road with five degrees celsius water which is underlying the entire city of edmonton I mean, there's 80 or 90 degree water underlying the entire city of Edmonton. Um, so it, the technology is there. What's kind of missing is the innovative novel use of the resource. And so we propose like really trivial things like this. Uh, we had a guy contact us in um, up at Wabamum who had a 5,000 hectare cattle ranch. And his, his biggest economic challenge was getting his cattle liquid water in the wintertime yeah. over these 5,000 hectares and he also had a lot of like economic metrics like if you're if the cow is drinking water at four degrees celsius how many calories does it need to burn to heat that water up to its body temperature where it can assimilate it and then how much feed does that does he need to buy to fill that caloric deficit versus it can we heat that water up to 15 degrees celsius for the cow and then of course you know he's got cows freezing to death out there because he can't get warm enough water to them so it's it, the economics really start to get into innovation um, and ingenuity, which I think Albertans are very good at, but it also gets into like the real fine details of economic structures. And so there's a lot of moving parts. And this is, this is what's going to, well, of course you answered like 10 of our questions, this, but this, uh, you know, I mean, essentially this is going to resonate with people because you're providing really practical, real life, sensible examples. And, and I know you've got a class or another commitment to get to doc. So I'll make this the last question, but I'm just curious, like for the average person that listens to this, I mean, there are obviously going to be people with science backgrounds and people that are keen and understand industry and, and they're going to be digging into what you're saying. But at a surface level, a lot of people are going to be curious to know, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for my monthly energy costs? And how far away from this are we? I mean, what would be your assessment of, of sort of what we've been talking about here at a high level versus what people can expect to see over the next one or three or 10 years? Uh, I would say that. So when we first started the project that we're working on now, the um, the, the Brownfield project with existing oil and gas infrastructure, we had a goal of wanting to see 10 megawatts of geothermal power under development by the end of the project, which is the end of this calendar year. Uh, currently, there are 30 megawatts, at least 30 megawatts of commercial geothermal power under development in Western Canada. So we've exceeded our own targets by a factor of three. Um, and so things are moving forward in Western Canada. There are a number of viable projects that are in various stages of developments, and there are a few more that are coming down uh, the pipeline. I think for the average consumer, uh, what we want to do is we want to be able to replace fossil fuel resources without increasing the cost that the consumer is paying on a monthly basis. And we know that in certain circumstances, like with heating, we are actually able to do that now. Um, the, the cost of heating a home with deep geothermal power using existing metrics about how much it costs to drill a well, how much it costs to install a pump, uh, what we know about the reservoirs, we feel that geothermal power can compete with natural gas today um, with uh, as far as economics for the consumer. Uh, regarding electricity, you know, people always raise the question, you know, is this economically viable? And at face value, the answer to that would be no, but I don't really like to give the face value answer. The, re the real answer to that question is that what is economically viable and what is not economically viable is a total social construct. Mm. We decide through our tax policies, 
through our investment policies, what is economically viable. And so if we want clean energy to be economically viable, that is a structural change that needs to happen um, within our regulatory bodies, within our governing agencies and whatnot. That has nothing to do with the actual cost of developing things. That's a great point. I mean, you, yeah. you take out, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you or I are both looking to pick a fight with downtown Calgary right now. But if you remove corporate subsidies and tax breaks and government infusion and co-ownership, Northwest Upgrader and yada, 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 then what really is economic viable. I mean, it's not like every single industry or every single form of energy has been told uh, in the equal lane of the swimming pool to sink or swim. That's just not a reality. Not at all. If if uh, if the if the current tax structure, corporate tax structure that we had not only in uh, in Canada, but in the United States and all around the world, if, if there were not hundreds of billions of dollars in subsidies going to oil and gas producers in various forms or another, there is not a single person on this planet that would be able to afford to put gas in their car. It's so good to connect with you. I feel like I, I feel like we're just kind of scratching the surface here. And so we'll look forward to having you back on the show, uh, maybe with a panel. We'll get the, the fusion guy on so you can th- sort of throw some hand grenades that way. And <laughs> we'll get the drywall people. We'll get the drywall the people we'll all, in yeah. to sort of represent their interests here. They've been underrepresented for years. Everybody knows that. <laughs> Dr. Jonathan Banks, uh, a geothermal researcher at the University of Alberta's Department of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences, uh, the lead investigator on a project looking at bringing geothermal energy production to legacy energy infrastructure thanks for your time we really appreciate it yeah thank you it was great talking to you yeah you got it i love conversations like i guess a beauty uh but fascinating stuff right i mean how cool is that and and i love that uh you know a bunch of real talkers had a bunch of different perspectives on this we didn't get to all the questions and there's so many great questions did you feel like he answered yours to your satisfaction sam oh oh, that and more yeah oh oh, yeah I, i mean like i'll when I was in engineering before I ran away to join the media circus, yes, this is Best what I wanted to do. Best move you ever made. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's like straight up, this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to work in renewable energy. Yeah. I wanted to look for alternate energy sources. I grew up from childhood having Bill Nye telling me that climate change was coming and yeah. I was in an oil and gas producing province and I went out and got an engineering degree wanting to do something different. Very so cool. this is so hitting me right in the feels. <laughs> <laughs> you and I are just watching Sam listen to this interview. I'm going, to like, I'm going, I think I think the right move is just to have him ask a question because I can see he's like, like, come on. Also, he would like probably like start twitching when if you were to say or state the question incorrectly. Ask the like, wrong That's question. not what I meant. That's not what I meant. Short circuit, short circuit. That's short not circuit. how I wanted to ask the question. <laughs> Do not speak on my behalf. <laughs> Amazing stuff. Great interview. Um, okay. And but yeah, just to clarify. A couple of people have been in touch with the show. I've just received an email personally. Uh, you know how to reach me, direct me. A lot of you have figured it out. Talk at RyanJesperson.com is the best way to do it because it also winds up in Sarah's inbox and Sarah's way better at email management than me. But somebody has figured out that if you just go Ryan at RyanJesperson.com, you just get me. Yeah. And they're, they're upset about my suggestion that we use coal to eat the water. And I want to clarify. <laughs> it's just a joke. Sarcasm. I'm just kidding. What is it now? It's it's slash S is what people are using on social media. To It's the sarcasm font because so many people were getting in trouble with their tweets that not everybody recognizes that it was just it, it was satire. It was sarcasm. So there you go. Uh, the team at Westworld Computers, they help us out. 
when we need new infrastructure in here, but also when things go sideways, they're an Apple-authorized service provider, which means that if you check them out at westworld.ca, you could book in right now to have your Apple products looked at, worked on by Apple-trained technicians using genuine Apple parts. They've been rolling like this family-owned independently for more than 40 years. That's why we're proud to partner with them, because they take their customer service seriously. On the service and sales side, you can give them a call right now, 780-454-5190, or book in at westworld.ca. Of course, you can visit them in person as well. I was there just the other day. Everybody's got, you know, the sanitizer at the door. Everybody's keeping their distance. Everybody's got masks on. You walk in there and you just go, if you're like me, ooh, ah. I was just looking for things to upgrade. I'm like the guy at the supermarket, you know, like you, you have all the groceries you need and then you get to the, you get to the, and then they get you at the tail. They get you. They get you. You're, you're like, maybe I do need a six new candy bars. Maybe I do need an energy drink. That's me at Westworld. <laughs> maybe I do need to upgrade my phone and my AirPods and my Apple Watch and my iPad and everything else. They've got it all. All the new sexy stuff. Again, at Westworld.ca. Also, our friends at Local Waste. Proud to present Trash Talk each and every Friday. You can send us your Trash Talk, an email to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Make sure you clearly label it so we can include your rant in our Friday tradition at localwaste.ca. If you check on the news link, you'll be able to get up to speed on exactly what they're doing. For example, for entrepreneurs out there, the ultimate guide to waste removal contracts. They tell you how to get out of a bad contract. I mean, how do you choose the best company to fit with your business? Or what about the pick of the litter? How they're finding value in landfill. You made an observation about local waste the other day. You remember what I'm talking about? I did. You said you were out for a walk or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and, and occasionally, first of all, local waste bins are easy to spot because they're pretty. Bright green. And they're always smaller. Yeah. And then they're not half full of air. It's like, great. They're, they're always smaller. Mikel, the CEO, he said to us, and it stuck with me, he said, air is free, but it's expensive to dump. Right? So you've got these small businesses and, and their waste management providers giving them these big, huge bins and charging them big, huge amounts every month. They don't need it. They need a small one. Local Waste grows with your business as your business grows. Find them online at localwaste.ca. Coming up on tomorrow's show, we're very excited to welcome the Canada correspondent from the New York Times, Ian Austin, will join us to talk about that Allen inquiry. We'll take a look at Justin Trudeau's new look cabinet with a couple political commentators you won't want to miss. And Ian Hannah Mansing joins us, anchor with the National. Oh, yeah, and by the way, something just some light fodder to chew on should you spank your kids. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, editorial producer Sarah Hoyles, technical producer Sam Brooks, managing director Josh Dunford, account coordinator Tanya Franklin. Merchandise Operations, Katie Cook-Chivers. Website Design, Mike Johnston. voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Supriya Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Julie Rohr, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis Settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.